Parker. Parker, you could stay up here, and I need that microphone. Hey, I'm going to invite Neil uh, Gerstner and his wife, Sonia, to come up now. And listen, if you've ever done community, if you've been in small group with Neil and Sonia and their time here at Good News, if you'd come up as well. And I'd also like to ask our elders to, uh, to come up um, also. And uh, so that's awesome. We, uh, Parker mentioned a few minutes ago our meeting on September 18th for strategic planning. And it's interesting, if, if you asked me to describe the kind of church that we want to be, what's about to happen is a picture of that. Because I would love us to be the kind of church that no matter how large we become, every single person in our church would be connected relationally so that if they were in crisis or if something amazingly awesome happens in their life, there would be somebody there to either encourage them and pray with them or celebrate with them. So this is a picture of the kind of church that I dream we could become. And Neil and Sonia just got married, so we're really excited about that. And um, part of the fact that they just got married is that Sonia is actually Brazilian. And so Neil and Sonia... Uh, were together, then they were apart, now they've been together, and they don't want to be apart anymore, so Neil's actually going to go live with Sonia in Brazil, which makes us sad, but really happy, so we're, we're excited, and so we want to pray for them this morning as uh, both celebrating their marriage and sending them to Brazil as, uh, as they return to your home and make a new home together, so let's, let's pray. Let's, uh, y'all join me in prayer. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we give you thanks for Neil and Sonia, for the new life that you've uh, made for them together as husband and wife, and, and for the home that you are desiring to build uh, with them in uh, Brazil. We pray that, Holy Spirit, you would go with them and encourage them, and that they would know that they have a forever family through the work of Jesus Christ and the and the work of the Holy Spirit, that though they'll be separated from us by many, many miles, they won't be separated from us as uh, co-laborers in your kingdom and as members of your forever family. Thank you for the churches in Brazil, for Leo, and, and for churches in Brazil that we've helped partner with, that they know and that they'll be a part of as well, and for the unity that gives us. And Father, I pray that you would use the unique gifts and abilities that Neil and Sonia have to advance your kingdom, to build your church, to give them joy, and to help others come to know Jesus Christ. And we thank you for their life here with us, and we send them uh, as your ambassadors to the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Love you. So last week, uh, we, um, I told you that we were going to start a new series this week on the book of Malachi. So it's, it's the last book in the Old Testament. So if you find Matthew and just go back a couple pages, you'll find the book of Malachi. And we're going to be in Malachi for uh, a couple months. Um, so I want to read uh, for us the first five verses of Malachi chapter 1. This is God's word. 
Let's pay attention to it. It's inspired and errant and fallible. It's our only rule for faith and practice. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. And I've made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Hey, I asked uh, my friend Jake to come up and help me with this uh, first um, illustration. And uh, so, Jake, thanks for helping. Here you go. There's that. Now, I have, uh, here's the prop. Okay, so you see this. You know what this is, right? Some honey. honey. Yeah. Is it on? I think so. Maybe the other one. Hold on. This is important. You need to be heard. I mean, if you're going to be on stage. This one's working. Oh, good. We're in business. Let's go. Let's go. Come on. Okay. So, you have honey. Do you like honey? I do. Okay, good. You know where honey comes from? Bees. Bees. Now, here's a question. Why, if they come from bees, do they package it in bears? Any idea? It's a good question. It's a good question. It's a great question. Yeah. What do you think? You have a guess? Bears like honey. Bears like honey. Way to go. Very good, Jake. That's right. So uh, bears like honey. Bees make honey. And so we've established some things we know about honey. But let's, let's do this. So if I take the honey and... Um, do you have any food allergies? I do not. Okay, good. <laughs> All right, so here, just, just take, take that. Just give that a little taste. How's that? Sweet. Sweet. That's right. So now tell us a little bit more about honey. What's it like? It's pretty good. It's pretty uh, good? <laughs> would you recommend it? I would. I would actually. And, is it, and you said it was? Sweet. Sweet. That's right. Awesome. Hey, give Jake a hand. Now, it's possible, just as Jake started that illustration, it's possible to know about honey. It's possible to know where honey comes from. It comes from bees. It's possible to know the kinds of animals that like honey, bears. It's possible to know about honey. But to experience the sweetness of honey is something altogether different. 
maybe the most famous theologian to ever live in the, or be born in the United States was a man named Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards actually used the illustration of honey to describe the difference between knowing about the love of God and experiencing the love of God. Jonathan Edwards, at one point in his life, he had an experience of the love of God, and this is how Jonathan Edwards... Now, if you've heard of Jonathan Edwards, maybe what you've heard about him is that he preached maybe the most famous sermon in English, which is a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Oh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. But listen to him describe the love of God. In 1737, he says this, I had a view that was for me extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and what is it, Jake? Sweet, sweet, sweet grace and love. I had a view that was for me extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God and His wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet (laughs) grace and love. What did Jonathan Edwards find? He went out in the woods, but he met the love of the Father. Is it possible, is it possible that some of us have become so familiar with the Bible or with the truths of Scripture that we've missed or forgotten the experience of the overwhelming love of God? Is it possible that some of us, if we're honest, have never had the experience of the overwhelming love of the Father. The security that the love of a heavenly Father could provide for our souls. Oh, can I ask you? Are you growing in your awareness of the overwhelming, unmerited, free, full love of your heavenly Father? Are you blown away by the love of God? Do you have a growing appreciation of the lengths to which God has gone to make you one of his choice children? The passage that we read this morning speaks to the love of God. Verse 2, I have loved you. My prayer for each of us this morning is that we would leave here this morning more convinced that long before we ever knew God, He loved us. Long before we ever came to know Jesus Christ, He loved us. And long before we could do anything to merit His love, He set his affection upon us and said, I love you. The verse, verse 2, it says, I have loved you. It's in the perfect tense in Hebrew, which means I do love you. I am loving you. I will love you. Continuous, unbroken, undeserving, overwhelming, abundant love. 
I have loved you. That we would know when we leave here this morning that Jesus loved us first. That's the point. Jesus loved us first. Now we're going to walk through the passage and we're going to learn what it means that Jesus loved us first. What is this sheer grace? What is this unconditional love? What is this electing, choosing love of a father for his kids? That God has set his affection on us, not because of any merit in ourselves, but surely only for his grace. What is it? What is the doctrine of unconditional love, election, sheer sovereign grace? What does it mean? Then we're going to answer the question, what are the objections to this particular doctrine? And then we'll answer the question, what could happen? in our lives if we took this truth into the center of our life. So what is it? What is this doctrine, this doctrine of election, this doctrine of God's sheer grace, this doctrine of God's unmerited love towards sinners? The book of Malachi was written, look at verse 1, it says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now, Malachi means my messenger, my messenger. And it could be that that's Malachi's name. It could be that there was a person named Malachi, and that's how I'm going to refer to him in this letter. I'm going to refer to him as Malachi. It also could be that Malachi is a title, my messenger, my chosen person to speak forth my word. And it could have been even Ezra. Because Malachi lived at the same time and was written at the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah lived and were ministering. And so it could be that Malachi is Ezra and he's writing as God's messenger to Israel. Now what's happening in the life of Israel? The book of Malachi is written to Israel. In Israel, this is written around 450 B.C., and at that time, Israel was just coming back from exile in the land of Babylon. And for about a hundred years, they had been working to restore and renew the life and worship of Israel back in the land after being in exile for a period of time because of God's judgment. So they've moved back into the land But over the course of the hundred years, although they've made great progress in restoring the temple and in restoring worship and in restoring the feasts, and you can read about that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, although they've made great progress in their heart, their hearts have grown cold and they've forgotten the wonder of God's grace and love. They've stopped being blown away by the greatness and glory of the grace of God that's been poured out to them. And so in the book of Malachi, there's a series of arguments between God and his people. And in each one of the arguments, God makes a statement, the people respond, and then God makes his case. God makes a statement, the people respond, and then God makes his case to prove that he's right. Now, the first one has to do with the love of God, but there's six of these arguments in the book of Malachi, and they deal with love, then worship, 
then marriage, then justice, then generosity, and finally, holiness. And in each of them, God makes a statement, the people argue, and God proves his case, makes his case. And in this one, God makes a statement, and his statement is, I have loved you. And the people, verse 2, they make an argument. But you say, how have you loved us? And God makes his case. And God's case is his electing love. His electing love. Verse 2, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. God makes his case. How have you loved us? My case is this. I loved you before you knew me. I chose you and I set my affection upon you and I saved you. And it's all of sheer grace. Because at the end of the day, there's only two ways to live. You can live by grace or you can live by merit. You can live by grace, God's unmerited, undeserving, ill-deserving grace. Or you can live by merit. If you choose to live by merit, then you will, it doesn't matter. It could be a little bit of merit or a lot of merit. But if you choose to live by merit, you're basically saying to God, you love me because of the good things you see in me. You love me because of the good things I do for you. And even if you're not a religious person, and if you don't bring God into the picture, even if you're not a religious person and you say, others love me, or I am lovely because I'm beautiful, or I'm lovely because I'm successful, or I'm lovely because I'm wealthy. Those might not be religious categories, but you're living on the basis of merit. So whether you're a religious person and you bring God into the picture and you say, God, you love me because I'm good, because I go to church, because I do the right things, I don't drink or cuss or smoke or date girls who do, or you're an irreligious person and you build up a record of righteousness through your work or through your beauty or through your finances. Either way, if you pursue that life of merit, you'll be disappointed. Because eventually the beauty will go. And eventually the finances will go. And eventually the success will go. Or if you're a religious person, you'll find yourself on a hamster wheel and there's always going to be someone who's just a little bit holier than you are. But what if? What if there was another way to live? Not on the basis of merit, but on the basis of God's grace. His undeserving love. That is Israel's origin story. And it can be your origin story too. 
It can be the thing that, I, that gives you an identity. It can give you an identity that goes all the way in and all the way down. Israel's origin story was an origin story of grace. Look at Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the people, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, last year, we walked through a portion of the book of Exodus, and we saw the story of God's saving love towards Israel in delivering them out of the house of slavery. And we saw again and again that that's our story. That we were held captive to sin and God by his grace sent his son Jesus, our redeemer, and he saved us out of the house of slavery, out of the bondage to sin. Why? Verse 7, because God set his love on his people. Verse 7, verse 8 mentions the forefathers Who were the forefathers of Israel? The forefathers of Israel starts with a man named Abraham. And in Genesis 12, God makes a promise to Abraham. At that time, he was still called Abram. And the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. And make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So beginning with the first forefather of Israel, Abram, God makes a promise. A promise on the basis of grace, that he would set his love, affection, and blessing upon him and cause his name to become great. And that having blessed him, he would then become a blessing for the nations. That God had a plan for all the world to bring people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation back into a forever relationship with him. Why? Because he loved us. Because he loved us. So God made a promise to that first forefather, I'll bless you and you'll be a blessing. Abram would have a son. And his name was Isaac. And to the second forefather, God makes a promise in Genesis 26. Genesis 26, God is speaking of Isaac, the second father of Israel. And he says, The Lord appeared to him in the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So God says to Isaac, I'm going to love you. I do love you. 
and I will love you, and I will cause you to become a great nation. I will multiply your descendants, and I'm going to do it because I've promised it to your father, Abraham. I've promised, and I will do what I've said I will do. And so then to Isaac, God makes a promise that he will give him descendants. And Isaac has two sons by his wife, Rebekah. And those two sons are twins. And we read about their birth in verse, uh, chapter 25. So just, you know, back one page. These are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Haram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it's so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So God makes a promise to Abram. God makes a promise to Isaac. The promise is fulfilled in Isaac, but now there's a twist. Two sons are in Rebekah, and they're struggling in the womb. And God says, I've made a choice between Jacob and Esau, and it's a choice by grace. Because if it was by merit, the older would be served by the younger. But it's grace. It's shocking. It's surprising. The younger is going to be served by the older. The younger brother is to be the one through whom the promise would be kept. Jacob, the younger son, would have preeminence over the older one, Esau. And why would that be? Is it because Jacob was better? No. Jacob's a rascal. In fact, Jacob, you wouldn't want to hang out with. Read the story in Genesis this week. You'd much rather hang out with Esau. He was much cooler. But Jacob, Jacob is the one whom God sets his affection on by grace alone. And Jacob becomes the one through whom all the promises come. It was sheer grace. We follow it all the way down in verse 28 of Genesis. God speaking again, verse 13. The Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and east and north and south, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Jacob, when my grace moves in, you'll go out. 
When my grace moves in, I'll bless you. I'll cause my love and affection to overwhelm you. But then, because of my love, because of my grace, you'll go out and you'll be a blessing to the nations. And so it was all the way through. God in his grace from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the way down through all the history of Israel, God was promising and God was doing until God sent through the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way through, he sent Jesus. And in Jesus, God fulfills his promise to bless and to make us a blessing. In John 15, verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you by grace. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ made it possible for us to come into a forever relationship with God that we could call God our Heavenly Father, that we could be a part of His forever family. He did it by grace. Not because we were the best or the brightest, not because we were the sharpest, but because of His love. He set His affection upon us. And because He set His affection upon us, Jesus Christ was willing For our blessing to be cursed. Jesus Christ on the cross was cursed so that we could become blessed. And now, having received God's love, having experienced the love of the Father demonstrated in the giving of the Son, we are able to go in His name as His ambassadors to be a blessing for the nations. So this truth that runs through all of Scripture is this. Jesus loved us first. Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. It's sheer grace. There's no merit in us. Now, you object. There's two objections that one might make. One is, there's many, but here's two that are answered in Malachi. One is this. One is this. Listen, if, if it's completely unmerited, if I'm chosen, isn't that going to make me proud? Aren't I going to become a, a proud person? Isn't that just going to create a, a group of people who think they're special and they're elite? Isn't that going to make us proud? Well, look at Malachi chapter 1, verse 4. Though Edom says... We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Who's proud? Esau's proud. Edom is proud. And what God is saying to Israel is, you are my chosen people. Don't be proud like Esau. Don't be proud. The doctrine of God's electing love by sheer grace isn't a pride-producing doctrine. It's a humbling doctrine. 
because there's nothing I can look to in me that would cause me to boast or look down on anyone else. There's nothing in me that, in which I could say, this is why God loves me. It's all sheer grace. The second objection might be this. You might say, well, if I take this truth into my life, won't it cause me to just become self-centered and, and only worried about myself and my people? But look at verse 5. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. That if you take this truth of God's electing love into the center of your life, it won't make you a proud person, it'll make you a humble person. And if you take this truth of God's electing love into the center of your life, that Jesus loved you first, into the center of your life, it won't, make, it won't cause you to only be concerned about your kind of people. It'll cause you to be concerned for the nations. It'll cause you to be concerned for the cause of Jesus across the street and around the world. You will want to say, God, be glorified. And help other people know and experience your love the way you have caused me to know and experience your love by sheer grace. Now, where does this take us? It takes us to our action step, which is this. I want you this week to enjoy and share the love of Jesus. Just imagine with me for a second. Imagine a married couple, and their marriage is just on the rocks. It's bad. I mean, it's bad. They fight all the time. They can't get along. They can't agree on anything. Groceries, kids, traveling, directions, everything's a fight. I mean, it is bad. And they say, well, we need to get some help. I mean, really, we're, we're about to lose it here. We need some help. So they could say, well, let's get our marriage certificate out. And let's look at it. Let's look at our marriage certificate and let's just feel really good about being married by looking at our marriage certificate. How would that work? I mean, is that going to bring the fire back? No. We need something more than just the doctrine. See, the marriage certificate's true, it's legal, it's binding. But it's like the doctrine. What we need is the fire. What we need is the passion. We need to enjoy Jesus. We need to enjoy and experience his love. And God has given us in the Bible and in the gospel two creosote logs of passion and fire that if we take them in, can set our hearts on fire for the enjoyment of Jesus. Let me show you. They're in the same chapter. Turn to Romans chapter 5. The first creosote-soaked log is the cross of Christ. If you find your heart growing cold to the love of the Father, if you find your heart growing cold to the greatness and glory of God's electing love, just learning the doctrine 
It'll help, but it won't get you all the way there. What you need is the fire. What you need is to take your, hand, your heart by the hand and lead it to the foot of the cross and at the foot of the cross be blown away by verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. At the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the bad news of the gospel that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all broken God's heart. We've all sinned against God and we're in big trouble. We haven't loved him the way we should. We're all dependent. If God's going to save any of us, he's going to do it on the basis of grace, on the basis of Christ. But God demonstrates his love toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That on the cross, God took our sin and put it on Jesus and punished him in our place. He took his wrath against our sin and he poured it out on his son, Jesus, in our place as our substitute. And when Christ died, he paid the full and awful penalty that our sin deserves, death. He died in our place as our substitute. And on the third day, he rose again to prove that the penalty really had been paid in full. And now he says that through the shedding of my blood, you can be saved. Not by your merits, but by his merit, by his perfect life and his atoning death. Jesus Christ says, let me be your savior. Won't you? Is he your savior? When we come to the foot of the cross we see the demonstration of the love of the Father. We see the demonstration of a Father's love that He was willing for your sake to punish the Son in, his, in our place. We see the love of the Father toward us demonstrated. Do you doubt the love of the Father? Look to the cross. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the first fire. Then, verse 5, And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God demonstrates his love for us in the cross and then he gives the Holy Spirit to us that we could experience the love of the Father. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's by grace. It's a gift. It's given. And the Holy Spirit comes that we might know who we are. The cross will humble our hearts. It'll send us down low to say, God, there's nothing good in me. We'll see in the cross our need of a Savior and the links to which God went to save us. And we'll see and experience in the Holy Spirit the assurance of God's love. So this week, do you enjoy Him? Would you ask Him? Jesus, make your cross real to me. Like the words of the hymn, 
Upon the cross of Jesus, my eyes at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my stricken heart with tears, two wonders I confess, the wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. Father, show me your love demonstrated in the cross. Father, give me your Holy Spirit that I might be overwhelmed with your love. But oh, the the Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit. And when the Holy Spirit fills us, he goes through us to help other people know and enjoy Jesus too. When we enjoy Jesus, we can't help but share him with others. If you try to share Jesus without the Holy Spirit, people drive you crazy. Really nasty people will, will come to faith in Christ and you'll be like, God, I, I didn't know all that. I mean, I didn't know you wanted to save real sinners. I thought you wanted to just save put-together sinners like me. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he's a missionary spirit, and he'll start working through you to unexpected people in unexpected places. And you'll have the time of your life enjoying and sharing Jesus with others. John Wesley was a pastor, but... He actually was a missionary. He left his home in England, and he went as a missionary to Georgia. And he was miserable. You know any miserable missionaries? John Wesley was miserable. And he failed miserably as a missionary in Georgia. He finally decided, I've got to go home. So he got in a ship to go home back to England, and on the way, the ship was hit with a terrible storm. And there was another group of missionaries on board the ship, and they're just praising the Lord, praising the Lord, singing hymns in the midst of the storm, and Wesley's thinking, these people are crazy, but I want it. So when he got back to England, he pursued getting into a fellowship with a group of people to help him figure out what was deficient in his experience of the love of God. And one day, this is what he describes at a meeting, when a group of people had gathered together and they heard the gospel that I shared with you this morning. And this is what he says, at about a quarter till nine... While he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Amazingly, What Wesley had been preaching for years now became real in his heart. How about you? Have you heard it and heard it till you can't hear it anymore? Are you ready to say to the Father, Father, give me the Holy Spirit that I might experience your love. Are you ready to say, Jesus, you loved me first. You get the glory. No merit in myself do I bring. Only to your cross I cling. Naked, come to you for dress. Oh, I have no other hope but in you, Jesus. 
Are you ready to say to him, Jesus, make my heart full with the enjoyment of you and let me be with the help of your Holy Spirit, your missionary across the street and around the world because Jesus, you loved us first. Let's pray. Father, help us. Send your Holy Spirit. Send your Holy Spirit to confirm in us that that you love us and you have loved us and you will love us. That Jesus, you loved us first. We look to the cross of Christ and, and on the cross we see you, Jesus, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. You lived and died and rose again. You saved us. If you're here this morning and you've never taken your eyes off of yourself and put it on Jesus, won't you put your trust in Jesus now? Won't you say to him, Jesus, I admit that I've sinned against you in many ways and I'm sorry. Jesus, I believe you died in my place. Jesus, I believe you rose from the dead. Jesus, come into my life as Savior and Lord. Help me become the person you want me to be. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, send your love into our hearts. By the grace of the Holy Spirit, help us experience the love of Jesus. Help us to enjoy it this week. And help us to give it away freely as we share him with others. This I pray in Jesus' name.